the theme of this uh, session is the final end of the human person and my focus will be on the traditional view that there is a very realistic possibility that humans might miss their final end and this lead view of course leads to a sharpened version of the problem of evil how could a god who is love and goodness possibly allow the final loss of rational creatures and recently the orthodox theologian David Bentley Hawk has presented a forceful argument to the effect that God in fact could not allow this. Hart's contention is that universal salvation is not something that we may dare to hope for in the spirit of Hans Urs von Balthasar, but in fact a necessary implication of God's nature and the nature of created freedom. And the great virtue of Hart's book is that it forces Christians to think more deeply about the question of what greater good could possibly motivate a divine permission of damnation. And this is, of course, a very difficult and daunting topic, and also an area where it seems to me that the Thomistic tradition, with which I identify to a large degree, has some additional work to do. The problem with doing this kind of work is that it always feels a bit awkward, to me at least, to approach the question of hell as an intellectual issue, considering the gravity of the matter. Nevertheless, I think it's important to do this, and therefore I will try to overcome my trepidation before this topic. In this talk, I will explore a way of responding to Hart's argument that is structurally similar to the so-called free will defense of hell, but that unlike the free will defense does not presuppose a libertarian understanding of human freedom. I will call this argument the Thomistic autonomy defense. It's inspired by the personalistic strand of the Thomistic tradition and especially the thought of John Paul II. So let us first take a look at the content of Hart's recent book. I focus on its two most important arguments. And the first argument starts from the claim that since God creates ex nihilo, his act of creation is, quote, infinitely free, constrained by neither necessity nor ignorance, unquote. From this, it follows that the final outcome or result of God's creative action will fully reveal the moral nature of God, who he truly is. If God's creation, when it has reached its eschatological fulfillment, still contains the natural evil of the suffering of the damned, then God will be fully responsible for this, according to Hart. Any residue of the tragic, any irreconcilable remainder of evil and suffering would be, quote, something God has directly caused as an entailment freely assumed in his act of creating, and so an expression of who he freely is, unquote. But this would mean that God is not goodness itself, but at best imperfectly good with an admixture of evil. However, since God is goodness itself, we can know with certainty, according to Hart, that there is no such thing as an eternal hell. So a natural objection to this line of reasoning is that the evil of eternal loss might not be positively willed by God, but merely permitted for the sake of a greater good. Hart, however, dismisses this suggestion as irrelevant. If the purportedly greater good is achieved at the price of the endless suffering of even one single soul, or even the possibility of such suffering, then this good can be at best, quote unquote, a tragically ambiguous good. Hart writes, 
what would any damned soul be other than a price settled upon by God with his own power, an oblation willingly exchanged for a finite benefit, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? And is hell not then the most innermost secret of heaven, its sacrificial heart? And what then is God's moral nature inasmuch as the moral character of any intended final cause must include within its calculus what one is willing to sacrifice to achieve that end, unquote. It does not matter for heart whether the soul that God would permit to be damned for the sake of a greater good is very despicable. Even if only Hitler will suffer for an eternity in hell and everybody else enter the kingdom, God's decision to create from nothing on this condition would still be morally inappropriate. To quote Hart's own words, no account of the divine decision to create out of nothingness can make Hitler's condemnation to endless suffering morally intelligible. According to Hart, even if we were to replace Hitler's endless suffering in hell with his annihilation at the end of time, which is a currently popular conception of perdition, it would still be morally impossible for God to create on the condition that this might happen. The eternal absence of some soul, quote, would still be a kind of last end inscribed in God's eternity, a measure of failure or loss forever preserved within the totality of the tale of divine victory. It hence follows with metaphysical necessity that if God is the good creator of all, he must also be the savior of all. In responding then to this argument, it should first be pointed out that God's act of creating is not, as Hart sometimes seems to say, totally unconstrained by any kind of necessity. Even though there are no external constraints on God when he creates, there are internal constraints in the form of broadly logical or metaphysical necessities in virtue of which God can be forced, so to speak, to choose between realizing a certain good or avoiding a certain evil. These constraints exist in virtue of God's intellect and cannot be changed by the divine will. So even though creation is an expression of who God is, it is not entirely an expression of quote unquote, who God freely is. Hart implicitly recognizes this when he discusses the idea that God might permit damnation or annihilation for the sake of a greater good, and an idea that, of course, presupposes some kind of constraints on God's creative options. As we recall, however, Hart claims that no matter what greater good is at stake, accepting the final loss of even one single soul would be incompatible with the divine goodness, and this is true even if the single soul is Hitler. The weakness of Hart's reasoning becomes most apparent, I think, if we consider what he has to say about the possibility that God might permit annihilation of souls. Although Hart does not put it in this way, what his view entails is that a God, good God must rather abstain from creating anything at all than permitting that Hitler and only Hitler gets annihilated at the end of time. In other words, if God, because of some broadly logical constraint on his creative options, had to choose between the following two courses of action, Hart's position entails that he must necessarily choose the second one, either creating rational creatures and permitting that Hitler is annihilated in the end, or not creating anything at all. However, the claim that God's goodness would require him to choose the second option is demonstratively unreasonable, as we can see by reflecting on what Hitler himself would have preferred. 
It seems very likely that he, like most people, would prefer to be created and exist for a time rather than not being created at all. So even if you look at the matter from the perspective of the single soul who, as we here assume, has to pay the price for God's act of creating, so to speak, we must conclude that art is wrong. Clearly, there is a rather modest greater good that could possibly outweigh the evil of the annihilation of the soul and hence could justify God's permission of it, namely the good of the previous existence of the soul in question. But what about eternal suffering in hell then? This seems to be a much graver matter than annihilation. Is Hart right to suppose that God must rather abstain from creating than permitting that Hitler ends up in hell? And I'm ap apologizing for the banality of taking Hitler as an example all the time, but it's, it's Hart's choice and not, not mine. In this case, there is no knockdown argument against Hart's view. I suspect, however, that most people would say that the non-creation of the world or the non-creation of all the rational creatures that now exist, including the Virgin Mary and Christ as a human being, is too steep a price to pay in order to save Hitler from hell. Hart clearly disagrees with this, but what we have here is merely a clash of intuitions. Hart has no argument to back up his view of what the divine goodness entails or requires. So what I try to show here is that Hart's categorical dismissal of all possible greater good defenses of hell is groundless, or at least based merely on his own questionable intuitions. But this, of course, does not mean that Hart has lost the debate. Even though there are goods that we could agree could outweigh the evil of eternal loss, at least the eternal loss of Hitler, the question remains why God could not realize those goods without permitting eternal loss. After all, it's very unlikely that God is logically constrained in some way to permit Hitler's damnation in order to be able to create any rational creatures at all. As a solution to this problem, mainstream Christian apologetics refers us to the greater good of human freedom. Since freedom is incompatible with necessities, so the argument goes, God cannot make a human being's attainment of her final end a matter of necessity. So God must allow the possibility that some humans do not attain their final end. Unless God leaves this possibility open, he would violate our freedom. This is the so-called free will defense, and Hart rightly rejects it. He correctly points out that, quote, freedom is a being's power to flourish as what it naturally is. Without mentioning Servais Pinker's concept freedom for excellence, this is what Hart has in mind. The freedom of a rational spirit, says Hart, is its consummation in union with God. This means that we are freer the less we are capable of deviating from our final end through sin. Christ, who was wholly incapable of sinning, was the freest among human beings. This view of freedom undermines the free will defense for hell. What Hart says is that freedom is compatible with necessity and that the possibility of sinning is not a condition for true freedom. And here Hart is in agreement with Aquinas, for whom natural necessity does not take away the liberty of the will. Indeed, more than this, says Aquinas, for as the intellect of necessity adheres to the first principles, the will must of necessity adhere to the last end, which is happiness. Hart is also in agreement with Aquinas when it comes to the relationship between free will and divine grace, or the divine efficient causality in general. 
Most interpreters of Aquinas take him to say that God can infallibly cause a free human choice without the freedom of that choice being in any way undermined. And Hart concurs with this. The suggestion, he says, that God could not assure that the person freely will one thing rather than another is simply false. Hence, for both Aquinas and Hart, the free will defense is a non-starter. While Hart has many good points with respect to the nature of freedom, he pushes things too far in my view. His second most important argument for universalism starts from the claim that freedom is contingent upon true knowledge and true sanity of mind. To the very degree that either of these is deficient, freedom is absent. And with freedom goes culpability, says Hart. And from this, he draws the conclusion that if somebody persists eternally in rejecting God, this must be due to, quote, eternal ignorance and therefore has nothing really to do with freedom at all. Not only is an eternal free rejection of God unlikely, it's a logically vacuous idea, unquote. Earhart reveals his adherence to the idea defended by John Milbank and others that rational freedom as such is constituted by an unconditional desire for supernatural union with God, a view that's more radical than Henri de Lubac's corresponding claim, which is more qualified and only concerns human freedom in its concrete historical form. However, even if we were to accept Hart's view that the desire for supernatural union with God is constitutive of the very nature of rational freedom as such, Hart's conclusion still does not follow, as I will now try to show. It is true, of course, that rejecting God is only possible for a person whose knowledge is less than perfect, in the sense that he does not see God's essence directly in the beatific vision. Since the knowledge of God granted to us in the beatific vision actualizes our freedom to the maximum degree, it follows that nobody who enjoys the maximum degree of freedom could possibly reject God. However, what is needed for a free and therefore culpable rejection of God is not maximal freedom, but only sufficient freedom. Presumably, many people here below who reject God have sufficient sanity of mind to be held responsible for this rejection in the same way as people can be held culpable for murders and other crimes. If God does not grant those who re reject him in this way the beatific vision at some point, there is nothing that logically prevents them from persisting in their free and culpable rejection of God indefinitely. Perhaps God is morally obligated to break down their resistance at some point, but if this is the reason why it's impossible for anybody to freely, freely reject God, then that impossibility has nothing to do with the nature of rational freedom, but rather with the moral nature of God. This means that Hart's argument from the nature of rational freedom reduces to his first argument from the nature and goodness of God. And this argument, as we recall, says that God's goodness is incompatible with God permitting any person to reject him forever. However, as we also saw, the success of this argument depends on whether there is a greater good that could explain God's permission of eternal rejection and damnation and hence make the divine permission compatible with God's perfect goodness. If there is such a greater good, the argument fails. So we are back then at the question of what the greater good might be, and we've seen that it cannot be human freedom, at least not for followers of Aquinas. Instead, many Thomists 
uh, defend God's permission of eternal loss by reference to, quote, the wisdom of a divine government that conforms to the nature of things. Human nature being fallible in its freedom, God allows it to sometimes fail, unquote. Not even God could create rational creatures that are infallible or indefectible by nature, incapable of falling away from the good through sin. The natural possibility of defection or failure exists by necessity for any being who is not the good itself. As Charles Journet says, to suppose a free creature which by nature did not possess the possibility or capacity to sin would be to suppose a creature which was its own supreme law, which is impossible. Of course, by his grace, God could make sure that the natural possibility of sinning is never actualized in any rational creature. It is arguably more fitting, however, for God to respect the fallible nature of rational creatures by permitting some of them to fail, even with respect to their final end. So this is a traditional Thomistic argument. And while this argument has considerable depth, I think, I do not believe that Thomists need to rely on it alone in order to explain or make intelligible the divine permission of damnation. I think there is another complementary greater good argument available from a Thomistic standpoint. And the latter argument is what I will call the Thomistic free will defense. The greater good that this defense appeals to is not autonomy itself, a concept I will shortly explain, but a good that presupposes autonomy for its perfection. Did I say free will defense? I meant to say autonomy defense. The good that presupposes autonomy is the good of friendship or intimacy with God. And the aim of the Thomistic autonomy defense is to demonstrate that the perfect, of good, perfect goodness of God is compatible with the possibility of damnation existing. The defense also aims to be compatible with Aquinas' view of human freedom as interpreted in the commentatorial tradition of classical Thomism. So what then do I mean by autonomy and how is it different from freedom? As I will use the term, autonomy presupposes freedom, but is a stronger or more demanding notion. While freedom is compatible with absolute necessity, autonomy is not, since it has to do with the capacity for choice or self-determination. Let me explain this in terms of Aquinas' conception of the will. In a sense, freedom or liberty belongs, according to Aquinas, to all acts of the will. An act of the will that is forced or compelled is not truly an act of the will at all. Some of the will's acts, however, are necessary since they flow from the will's nature, such as the desire for happiness. The will must, of course, like everything else, have a nature, and having a nature means to have some inborn and necessary inclination that the will itself has not chosen, but that underlies and conditions its very capacity for choice. The idea of having total autonomy or freedom of choice in all respects is incoherent since this entails that the will would not have a determinate nature, which in turn would mean that all its choices would ultimately be arbitrary. A will that can unrestrictedly choose even its own ultimate end must ultimately choose randomly. However, with respect to most potential objects of the will, the will's nature is compatible both with willing them and not willing them. In such cases, the will is not determined by its nature to will or not to will or to will this or that. 
This means that the human person has the power to determine himself with respect to different options or means towards the final end of happiness. This is choice, electio, and the power of choice or liberum arbitrium is one of the essential powers or acts of the will in cooperation with the intellect. It is crucial to note, however, that by autonomy, that is the power of self-determination or choice, I do not mean the power to determine oneself independently of God's universal causality that determines everything on a different causal level. I'll come back to this topic later. The fact that they are autonomous in certain respects makes rational creatures more dignified and valuable than creatures that lack the capacity for self-determination. In the Veritate, Aquinas teaches that God gives rational creatures not only the power to communicate God's goodness to others by being genuine causes, but also the power to communicate goodness to others in the same manner as God himself does this, namely, quote, according to their will and not according to any necessity of their nature, unquote. As autonomous in certain respects, in this sense, we participate more fully in God's goodness. Besides the general ontological dignity that comes with autonomy, there are certain kinds of personal relationships that require autonomy for their existence or perfection. Marriage is perhaps the clearest example. To marry somebody means to give oneself to that person, and such a gift of self must be the result of deliberate self-determination rather than necessity or chance. As St. John Paul II says, Bethrotted love can never be a fortuitous or imperfect event in the inner life of the person. It always constitutes a special crystallization of the whole human eye, determined because of its love to dispose of itself in this particular way. In order to dispose oneself in one way rather than another, one must have the power of self-determination. Only then can one, as the former Pope says, surrender one's eye to another, whether this be a spouse or God. The importance of autonomy or self-determination is further underlined by the former Pope when he defines the gift of self as quote-unquote a re renunciation of Love, he says, proceeds by way of this renunciation, guided by the profound conviction that it does not diminish and impoverish, but quite the contrary, enlarges and enriches the existence of the person." Unquote. One cannot renounce one's autonomy for the sake of another person out of love, unless one first has autonomy. The Pope elaborates on this theme in terms of the concept of freedom. Love, he says, consists of a commitment which limits one's freedom. It is a giving of the self, and to give oneself means just that, to limit one's freedom on behalf of another. And what the Pope is talking about here obviously is not freedom in the sense of freedom for excellence. He does not intend to say that you limit your freedom to flourish as a human being when you give yourself to another. In fact, he intends to say the exact opposite. What John Paul II here means by freedom, I take it, is autonomy. To give oneself to another means to voluntarily limit one's autonomy in certain respects in order to be united to another. Freedom, writes the Pope, and we should read autonomy, exists for the sake of love. Love commits freedom and imbues it with that to which the will is naturally attracted, goodness. In other words, autonomy exists partly in order to be given away in the highest forms of love. This is the ultimate meaning of human lives. 
in the words of Matthew Levering, the fundamental purpose of creation, that for which all things were created, is the marriage of God and humankind, and through humankind's microcosm, the marriage of God and the entire cosmos." Unquote. The personal relationship between God and humans, that is the purpose of creation, can also be characterized as a relation of friendship. In fact, marriage itself is best understood as a form of friendship, and Aquinas says that there seems to be the greatest friendship between husband and wife. Aquinas understands love for God in accordance with the paradigm of friendship love, and he therefore defines supernatural charity as friendship with God. Friendship for Aquinas always involves a form of self-communication or gift of self, as Michael Waldstein has pointed out. Aquinas puts it in this way, to those whom we love with the love of friendship, we are related as to ourselves, communicating ourselves to them in some way. My main point here is that according to the Bible and Catholic tradition, the ideal relationship between humans and God is a marriage-like or friendship-like relationship which involves the gift of self to God. This kind of relationship presupposes for its perfection self-determination on the part of the human persons involved. Only persons who have a certain autonomy can enter into a marriage, which is the greatest or most perfect form of friendship. And henceforth, henceforth I will, for the sake of simplicity, speak about humans marrying God. And by this, I simply mean the entering into an intimate friendship relation with God, which is perfected in what the mystics call spiritual marriage and ultimately in the beatific vision. Now, if David Bentley Hart is right, humans do not have the power of self-determination with respect to whether they will at some point marry God or not. Hart argues, as we have seen, that it is absolutely necessary that all human beings sooner or later become friends with God through grace. This is necessary both in virtue of God's nature as goodness itself and in virtue of the nature of human freedom. We have the power to delay the marriage ceremony, so to speak, but not indefinitely. The fact of the marriage is necessary and the only contingency concerns when it will happen. But if this is the case, our final marriage-like relationship with God must be less than perfect, in fact gravely deficient. It is, as I have argued, of the essence of marriage and perfect friendships that they are the result of self-determination or choice on the part of those involved. The party's mutual self-determination to be with each other makes the union between them more personal and intimate than it would otherwise be, and loving intimacy is of course a perfection of marriage-like relationships. This means that a perfectly good God can permit rational creatures to reject his love forever. This follows from the fact that unless the possibility of permanent rejection exists, any marriage-like friendship between God and a rational creature will not be the result of self-determination on the part of the creature, and the relationship will therefore be deficient. Now, friendship with God is the most intimate relation that any created being can have with him who is goodness itself. And the good of such friendship is therefore, in the words of Marilyn McCord Adams, an incommensurate good, a good so great that it cannot even be compared with any non-transcendent goods or evils. 
If the non-deficient or perfect realization of this incommensurate good logically requires the ability to reach God forever, then it's fully compatible with the divine goodness to permit eternal rejection. The Thomistic autonomy defense presented as an argument. The best or most intimate relationship that is possible between God and a rational creature is a marriage-like relationship, as I have argued. A marriage-like relationship is grave efficient unless it is the result of a genuine self-determination or choice. A genuine choice on the part of, creature, of a creature to marry God, so to speak, presupposes that it's possible for it not to marry God. To say that it's possible for a creature not to marry God is to say that it's possible for it never to marry God, because unless the possibility of never marrying God exists, the creature does not have a choice between marrying God or not marrying God, but only a choice between marrying God now or later. Hence, unless God permits the possibility that the creature never agrees to marry him, that is eternal rejection, any marriage-like relationship between the creature and God will be gravely deficient. The good of a non-deficient or perfect marriage-like relationship between God and rational creatures is an incommensurate good, and therefore outweighs the evil of eternal rejection. Hence, a good God can permit eternal rejection in view of the greater good of realizing the most intimate relationship possible between himself and rational creatures, which is a marriage-like friendship. So this is the argument. And note that the conclusion, conclusion is not that God does permit eternal rejection, but only that he can do that. In other words, it would not in any way be unfitting or morally inappropriate for God to permit it. So the autonomy defense is only an anti-heart argument. It's not an anti-Balthasar argument. Although it seems to me that Balthasar sometimes sounds as if it would be unfitting for God to permit eternal damnation. However, to claim that, to say that it would be unfitting is to imply that a perfectly good God cannot do it. And such a claim would then undermine Balthasar's own contention that damnation is a real possibility. But I will not talk uh, about Balthasar anymore here. Okay, so there are at least four potential objections to the autonomy defense that must be addressed. First, the persons of the Trinity have no choice whether to love each other or not, and yet their loving relationship is as perfect as can be. Is this not a counterexample to my claim that the perfect relationship between God and rational creatures presupposes that the latter can choose whether to marry God or not? I don't think so. The three persons of the Trinity are all identical to the one essence of God. So intra-Trinitarian love is a case of divine self-love, the divine essence loving itself in different ways. Self-love by nature excludes autonomy since nobody can be autonomous in relation to himself. However, the fact that self-love, including divine self-love, excludes autonomy does not support the conclusion that autonomy is superfluous in loving relationships between ontologically distinct parties, such as God and a rational creature. We can see this by reflecting on the relationship between human self-love and love of others. No person is, of course, capable of rejecting himself or his own love. 
However, from this it does not follow that it is, that is appropriate to deny other people the possibility to reject one's love. Autonomy has no place in human or divine self-love, but it has a crucial place in human and divine love of others. And this explains, I believe, why the Christian tradition does not use the metaphors of marriage or friendship to characterize the mutual love between the persons of the Trinity. Marriage or friendship are by essence relations between ontologically distinct beings, you can argue, and this is why those relations are perfected by a mutual respect for the autonomy of the parties involved. Second objection against the autonomy defense concerns whether it really differs from the free will defense. Why is it important for the perfection of the marriage-like relationship between creatures and God that creatures have the option of not marrying God? Does not this claim presuppose some kind of libertarian understanding of freedom according to which freedom is incompatible with natural necessity? No, it does not. I, I do not deny that a creature's decision to marry God could possibly be free, even if the creature lacked an alternative option. However, what matters in the context of marriage-like relationship is not merely freedom, but self-determination. And self-determination is incompatible with natural necessity and requires the existence of different alternatives. Otherwise, there is nothing for the self to determine. So I have not chosen, for example, my own nature. If my friendship with God is a necessary consequence of what my nature is like or what God's nature is like, then that friendship is not the result of any self-determination on my part, but rather a unilateral determination made by, made by God when he designed my nature. But friendships by their essence should be the result of mutual self-determination. It could perhaps be argued that this applies to all friendships except for friendship with God. But then maybe it would be more correct to say that what we have with God is not really friendship. Previously, I claimed that the autonomy defense is compatible with the classical Thomistic view of the relationship between free will and divine causality. It could be asked, however, whether this really is true. Considering the important role I have ascribed to choice and the absence of divinely imposed necessity, does not classical Thomism say that God can infallibly make the human will choose whatever God wants it to choose? And does not this view then remove our power of self-determination? In order to answer this query, we need to follow Aquinas in making a distinction between absolute necessity and suppositional necessity. Absolute necessity is what analytic philosophers refer to as broadly logical necessity. To say like Hart that it is absolutely necessary that every human person sooner or later marries God is to say that there is no possible world in which a rational person exists but does not at some point marry God. I have argued that this kind of necessity, absolute necessity, destroys a person's freedom of choice or power of self-determination with respect to whether he will marry God or not. Suppositional necessity, on the other hand, is necessity given a certain in itself non-necessary supposition or assumption. For example, the supposition that God moves a person's will to make a certain choice. Aquinas writes, if God moves the will to anything, it is incompatible with this supposition that the will be not moved thereto. 
So given the fact that God moves my will to say yes to God, for example, it is suppositionally necessary that I say yes to God, but it is not necessary, absolutely speaking. There are, in other words, possible worlds in which I make a different choice, perhaps because God permits me to say no to him in those possible worlds. Classical Thomists argue that suppositional necessity does not destroy a person's freedom of choice. In itself, or in the divided sense, the will retains its power to choose differently, even though its choice is necessary in the composite sense or given the supposition that God moves the will to make a specific choice. Now, the autonomy defense against Hart's argument depends on the very reasonable premise, I would say, that absolute necessity takes away freedom of choice. The defense does not, however, depend on the more controversial and in my view false claim that suppositional necessity of the kind we have considered takes away freedom of choice. Classical Thomists deny that suppositional necessity takes away freedom of choice, as we have seen, and claim that people can have a real choice with respect to God's offer of salvation, as long as it is not necessary, absolutely speaking, that they accept that offer. Hart, however, claims that it is necessary, absolutely speaking, that everybody accepts God's offer of salvation at some point. So even if we judge by the standards of classical Thomism, we must conclude that Hart denies freedom of choice with respect to salvation. This means that classical Thomists such as Domingo Banyas or Garigou-Lagrange can embrace the autonomy defense without being inconsistent in any way. From a Thomistic standpoint, a person can exercise true self-determination or choice, even though his choice is determined on another causal level by God as first cause. But only if the choice the person makes is contingent in itself or in the divided sense. And the latter is what Hart's necessitarian universalist denies with respect to the human choice to marry God. The last objection in heaven, we do not, according to Aquinas, have freedom of choice in respect of whether to love God or not. We have no choice but to love God. If freedom of choice or the power of self-determination is essential for the perfection of a marriage-like relationship with God, it seems to follow that our relationship with God is less perfect in heaven than here below. But this cannot be right, of course, so freedom of choice cannot be essential for the perfection of our relationship with God. The answer to this objection is that only a person who has autonomy can enter a marriage or a marriage-like relationship, because entering such a relationship means precisely to renounce one's autonomy in certain respects out of love. Prior to marrying, a person is free to choose whether to marry or not to marry, and this is essential to the relationship. However, by the very act of marrying somebody, he renounces this freedom of choice and hence renounces part of his autonomy. He's no longer free to choose. As we might recall, St. John Paul defines the gift of self, which takes place in marriage as a re renunciation of autonomy. In heaven, we have renounced our autonomy in the sense that we no longer have a choice with respect to saying yes or no to God, since we have already made our choice and thereby, in the words of John Paul II, committed our freedom. This very act of commitment makes the ensuing relationship more perfect than it would be if we never had any autonomy. So I will now move to a conclusion. I think it's 
very useful to distinguish between two different paradigms or logics that govern how we think of our relationship to God, namely the logic of the created spirit's dynamism toward the highest good and the logic of personal relations, such as marriage or friendship with God. When we look at reality through the spectacles of the first logic, we see a teleological order where God is our telos, the end that perfects us and makes us completely happy. We come to this end through contingent choices, so autonomy or freedom of choice has a role to play, but a limited one that only concerns the means to the end. In the context of this paradigm, the idea that God would allow some of us to fail to attain our final end can seem rather foreign. If we are necessarily inclined to seek happiness, why should not our attainment of happiness be a matter of necessity as well? After all, freedom is a rational being's power to flourish as what it naturally is and to deviate from one's trajectory towards one's end through wrongful choices inhibits one's flourishing and therefore lessens one's freedom. I'm not saying here that it is impossible to explain God's permission of final failure within the framework of the first logic. The traditional Thomistic explanation that I recounted earlier points out that fallibility belongs to the nature of created spirits, and it seems to be a good thing for God to govern the world in accordance with the nature of things. This provides some intelligibility to God's permission of final failure, even in the context of the first logic. Thomists and others should not forget, however, that besides the first logic, there's another equally true and important way of framing or characterizing our relationship to God, namely in terms of the logic of personal relations. In the context of this paradigm, God is a potential friend or spouse, and friends or spouses respect each other's otherness. The imposition by one friend of an absolute necessity on the other friend deprives the other of the power of self-determination and detracts from the personal character and intimacy of the relationship. This is why it is in human context a virtue to let one's beloved choose whether to recipro reciprocate one's love or not, and a vice to deprive her of that choice. I have argued that when we look at things in terms of the second logic, it does not seem strange at all that God would allow the possibility of eternal rejection. The possibility to say a permanent no is simply a constitutive element of the most valuable forms of personal relationships. David Bentley Hart completely disregards the logic of this second personal paradigm. It is hard to exaggerate, he writes, how large a metaphysical solecism it is to think of God as an option that can be chosen out of a larger field of options. God is not some sort of particular object that one could choose or reject. He is rather the fullness of being and the transcendental horizon of reality that animates every single stirring of reason and desire. The question is, however, why God could not be both an object of potential choice or rejection and the fullness of being. This, of course, is a very counterintuitive idea, and it would be appropriate to pour scorn on it, as Hart also does, were it not for the fact that divine revelation forces us to accept it as true. 
Through the incarnation, God clearly showed that he wished to relate to us in accordance with the logic of personal relations. In Bethlehem, he made himself an object of potential choice or rejection. Apparently then, God wants to lead us to himself as our final end through our free autonomous choice to become friends with him in Jesus Christ.